another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by Tony. A whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. No one to tell us no, or where to go, or say we're only dreaming. I assume we're going on a magic carpet ride now. Yeah, maybe. I was hoping, I'm hoping maybe, I don't know, Disney like calls us, either a cease and desist order, or, (laughs) hey, we're thinking of getting in the podcast business, you know? Yeah, no, I suspected Disney were to contact us about that. It would not be so friendly. It would be the cease and desist side. It would not come from casting. I'll put it to you that way. Ah, all right, all right. <laughs> well, you know, there's no no such thing as bad PR, so they tell no, me. No, I mean, you know, a little court stint could certainly make your world more realistic, huh? Absolutely. Court costs. I'll, I'll say this. You nailed it, though. I thought you did a good job with it. I mean, I feel like you've broken that out on dates before. Like, that seems like your close the deal kind of song. <laughs> Long, baby. Let me show you a whole new world. He, he was saving that to the end, huh? But how the hell does that tie into with our topic? It ties into our topic because we are trying to show our players a whole new world. Now, that's really this. This episode comes from three different player email suggestions. Actually, uh, some of them came in through the web form. Some of them came in through our threewisedms at gmail.com. And if you don't know where the web form is, it's right on our website, threewisedms.com. It's the What's Your Problem field. If you have any problem or any suggestions you'd like to hear us talk about, please go to the website and throw it in the, the What's Your Problem field or send it to us an email, threewisedms at gmail.com. Or you can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And, you know, we just constantly make episodes out of, out of reader feedback, out of listener feedback. So if you have anything you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us a line and let us know. Today, we're going to put together a little bit of a combination episode because we've had a few questions about things that really aren't how do you build better characters or campaigns or combat, but sort of how do you make the other stuff in the world a little more interesting, a little more, you know, what you might call in video game terms, immersive. So we're going to hit those questions about what do you do with weather, how, what do you do with puzzles, how do you work? Uh, how, how can you work skill challenges in? Just how can you make things a little more interesting in your world? And that's the sort of thing we're going to talk about today. Really showing your players that the world is more than just rolling initiative and attack rolls. So let's talk about puzzles to begin with here. Now, I don't use puzzles probably nearly enough in my games. Tony, you've used them quite a bit in yours. Dave, I don't know. How do, you, do, you, do you pull puzzles in very often? I hate puzzles. <laughs> I hate them. But, but mainly because I'm so bad at them. Um, partly as a player, I'm terrible. Like when they do riddles, uh, I, it's, it's like the bane of my existence, but we actually almost had a puzzle in the last strong campaign. We just, uh, last strong session. We just ran when you guys got to the wizard's tower. Um, you didn't quite get to that part because the wagon blew up and then the, lit- the wagon by not looking for a trap and, like the monkeys we are in that game, we just blew it up instead. <laughs> I gotta tell you, that was surprising because most of the time you guys are searching like everything. Like, go search that door. Go do that. You know, investigate. Whatever. You but, guys yeah. took too long in the town. I was just opening the door. 
I was on a short fuse. Suddenly, Tony's the impulsive character. So before we get into it, though, let's go over the uh, the question we have. Joe Nathan is a quote-unquote fledgling DM for a small group of newish players. The players encountered one pseudo-puzzle, and they really enjoyed it and asked for more. So my question is, how do you design puzzles? Where and when do you use them? And when should it be paired with a threat? Thanks for all the insight. Best regards, Joe Nathan. So, uh, Tony, I think you've got the best handle on puzzles. So... I don't know what would give you that idea, but all right, I'm going to run with that. I've seen you them use them the most. Games. You used them the most. And I apologize to Dave every time I do this, because I'm like, all right, and you just finished fighting the Hydra, and oh, bad news. I'm sorry. Not another Hydra. It's a puzzle. It's even worse. <laughs> you have. You have absolutely apologized in-game to me whenever you uh, have pulled a riddle out or something. <laughs> so... You know what's funny? Just so I guess I was out there real quick. I sometimes, when I read an email like this, I feel bad for not doing more puzzles. Because yeah, I do right. social encounters, I do some skill challenges, I do a lot of combats, I do a lot of tactical stuff. I do feel like I should work more puzzles into my games. I feel like it's a little flat without them. Because, you know, it's just kind of, the puzzles get you off of the, uh, they get you out, off of the rule set. Well, that is cool. But some of our guys we play with would spend 20 minutes buying virtual candles. So, I don't know, we let them do puzzles, we could be in a lot of trouble. How do I design them? I start with the answer, and then I move back onto how I am going to have them solve that. With these kind of things, we're going to throw a monster in there. Usually the monster is the threat if you fail the puzzle challenge. You don't want to have a single fail. Like, you get the puzzle wrong, and, oh, you're screwed, it's wrong, you can't open the chest. I don't care if you roll a uh, use a tool check of a 30, it's just locked because you failed the puzzle, you're beat. I don't want to do that. <laughs> you fail the puzzle make them fight the encounter, and take another crack at it. Thor, I would actually say, Tony, I agree with everything you just said there, because the threat has to be there, just like everything else. If there's no threat there, then there's no point to it. There's there's nothing as to why am I why am I making this puzzle. So something has to happen. It doesn't have to be a monster that jumps out, but something has to occur. Thor, I would say that you actually do puzzles a lot. We just don't call them puzzles. In Call of Cthulhu, we call them mysteries, call them clues. <laughs> That is that is a large puzzle. You are putting together these pieces that go together to form the answer to the goal for the big bad or the organization or whatever it might be. And I would say the same with something like the Strahd campaign. There are pieces that you guys are putting together that is somewhat of a puzzle. You're puzzling out like what is the motive of this? What is the how do we approach this thing other than I go and punch the bad guy? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, from a certain point of view, that is certainly true. I mean, some of the campaigns, the entire campaign is the puzzle. Mm. Like, we don't know what the deal is with Strahd. We, we've guessed a lot. We know a lot of background. But, yeah, like, why is he doing what he's doing? And why is he letting us go around? And why hasn't he stopped us? We don't know that. In Call Cthulhu, you don't know what the mystery is. That's true. And, you're, and you are working to solve the mystery. And some of that can be more puzzle-like as you go through and try to discover things and think through problems. But when I think of a puzzle, yeah. I think more of like a like a like a puzzle encounter, and that's kind of what I yeah. was thinking that Tony does a lot of. Exactly. Uh, which you know is more like the when you have that puzzle where it's like, okay, now you've got to figure out how to unlock this door. No, 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 you're not going to roll a lockpick. Here's a slide puzzle. How do you do that? Or I'm going to tell you a riddle, and then I'm going to wait to see if any of you can solve the damn riddle. And that often takes a whole night. I mean, <laughs> riddles are hard for us adults. Well, it's, the, it's why that joke runs so well. The means that go out about the puzzle for the third grader. And it's yeah. like, 
think of the number I'm thinking of between one and three, and they're like, R, you know? <laughs> it's like, it, it becomes so hard because there is such a lack of player knowledge. They don't know everything you know, and you don't realize how much the players don't know because the world is all in your head like we've talked about before, you know? I think I like a actual physical puzzle that all the players can interact with more than a riddle. And I'll tell you why. Because you're going to have one of two effects usually with a riddle. And I do have to run plenty of riddles myself. Yeah. And it, when I do that, I usually do multiple riddles because this is what happens. You have that one person in the party that just nails it. And I'd be like, blah, 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 10 lines. And he'd be like a duck. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, what? Like, I'm, I'm barely finishing the riddle and then got the answer. And everybody else was clueless. They're like, I would have been here for two days and not get it. <laughs> so if you have a ringer in your party like that, I recommend multiple riddles back to back. But when you have more of a puzzle, you're moving around pillars, you're trying to put paintings in a row, like, you know, Resident Evil did. You pick your flavor on how you want to do that. Everybody gets involved and that makes it more fun. Yeah. Well, I definitely have thrown that stuff in, though. That And those I, I threw in both in the Strahd game. Uh, you guys had one of those happen in Christmas Land. Tony, it was your character. It was Hawk went up to the top of the Snow Queen's tower, I think it was. And to become the new Snow Queen, you had to answer the riddles. And I got a bunch of these corny-ass Christmas pun kind of slash Halloween-y kind of riddles that, again, were kind of tough because they were so simple and it's like there's there's multiple answers sometimes and you're like well no that's not the answer i have on my sheet so i can't give that to you uh so i think with that type of stuff you need to have a little bit of uh liberalness with how you allow the players to interpret it uh but with puzzles you guys just had one uh you didn't get to it but you're not going to now so i can re reveal it but the door to the wizard's tower that you were just at had all of those embossed figures in different poses. And in essence, the little design in the middle showed you the way in which you had to do these different poses in front of it, kind of Vogue style, to unlock the door. You know, And if you didn't, a giant blue dragon appears and attacks you. You know, So Why wasn't that, I that was a puzzle as well that oh. I was hoping you guys were actually going to start to play with because Bonnie's character actually started to look at it and go, those look like dance moves. And I was like, oh, yep, that's what it is. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had second degree burns. I was preoccupied. That entire, like, like, I feel like that could have been so much fun, except for like, like there was something that distracted me outside of the game. So I was off my game. Like when we hit that, I'm like, whatever. I'm not, I'm not thinking relaxing. I'm just trying to cover everybody. Right. I don't send Patty in to do anything. And the next thing I know, someone tries to open the door and boom, it explodes. And it's like, ah, oh, okay. And it just, like, the whole thing was off, you know? We're not, like, investigating anymore. We're just focused on how do we kill this... This, By the way, if you play Curse of Strahd, we restored Exathanhurst's memories and let him go to his tower, where he promptly killed two potentially useful NPCs. Uh, so we were basically just like, do we kill this guy or not? He likes us. He's been following us. He does us a favor, actually. So it was just a you different guys, kind I, of vibe, you know? I kind of pulled a DM Tony on that one. That was... Uh... That was not quite, that was a little bit uh, invented. I just decided that Exithanter goes back to the tower. So that's, uh, you guys are not going to find that in the book for anyone running it. But 
give us a call and I can I can lead you through what I did when they restored his memories. Yes, call the hotline. It is called the Wizard's Tower, you know. I mean, it it makes sense. It begs for it, right? It begs for it. Anyway. I see what we got. So, yeah, we didn't get to play with that, and that would have been cool. I will say, backing up to Riddles for a second, I like and don't like Riddles at the same time, and here's why. I like the way the entire party gets involved. Because when we do Riddles, traditionally, the DM throws it out there, and then the whole party writes it down and goes over what the answers could be. What kind of drives me nuts is that I'm always the guy who comes up with an answer to the riddle that fits the parameters and is not the answer to the riddle. <laughs> My, exactly. I'm just always that guy who comes in like, it's Black Eyed Peas. It's not, you know, and like the DM, like you can't, is that your final answer? And everyone else is like, no, it's wind. And I don't even remember what the riddle was where we got Black Eyed Peas versus wind. But it was wind. Like wind was the answer, but Black Eyed Peas fit everything else we were talking about. So like that's the, that's the frustrating thing about them is when you kind of come up with an answer that fits, but isn't correct. But I like the, the the party interaction, and that's the cool thing about it. Like, if you wanted to do a puzzle, I keep thinking about it. Like, you go to Borders and buy one of these, like, buy one of these hand puzzles. One of these kind of, like, or go to not Borders. Go to Barnes & Noble with Borders. <laughs> Hasn't been around for a long time. There, I'm dating myself. Is it, go is to like Walden Books. And uh, go check it out at Walden Books. You go to Blockbuster, you pick up a DVD, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get a, a cassette at the wall. Go ahead. But I know exactly where you're going with that, Thor. It's the, the physical thing you throw out on the table, right? But you got to make sure everyone can play with things. You know, one player is going to grab it and not give it back. <laughs> you know, one player is going to grab it and look at it. And they're really something you have to feel in your hands. So that's the downside of them. Like, puzzle-wise, you also just have the puzzle that's just here's what the setup is and how do you solve it, which is what that dance puzzle would have been. Yeah, it, exactly. So something like that where it's a physical representation, or at least with Roll20, I had shared that that image with the party. And immediately a lot of them started to put things together because it begs for it. Uh, but I have also run it where it's on the map itself, where it's very Indiana Jones style. You're walking into the, the crypt and the pillars along the floor are in a certain pattern. And if you don't hit that, maybe they crumble out or something fires at you or 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 whatever might happen. Um, that's an easy way, too, because that's a way that the party is involved in terms of initiative order, in terms of combat tactics that mm-hmm. type of stuff you know but if you're running a riddle you still have to manage it like any other scene so if you're this if you throw the riddle out there and it's floundering you have to ask yourself is this good game time are they really having a good time like you you have to really check the temperature of the room are they like yeah this is fun and we're really into it or are they like mother fuck, I really have no idea. And they're like banging their heads against desks and walls and stuff. And then I'm like, um, yes, Mrs. Paul's fish sticks. That was correct. Yes, that's exactly what I was looking for. You know, you know, what's making me think this is as we're talking, one of the things I think that gets, because a lot of people have this same issue with riddles or puzzles, um, especially when they're all mental based, you know, when it riddle, it's all just, here's the wording and give me the answer or a puzzle is kind of like, I have to look at it is you are completely divorcing the player and the character at that point, because you are now relying on player being able to figure this out where my character, let's say it's Erasmus, the storm giant wizard. He's got a 20 intelligence. He would know every fucking riddle for the last three ages that have occurred, you know, or at least be able to figure them out. And when I'm not doing that, I'm divorcing myself. I'm having to rely on what does Dave know about this? 
right? As opposed to what does, you know, Beam or Phineas know. That's a great point. The problem is if you just base it on the, what the character knows, you now reduce all of your riddles and puzzles to another die roll. Do it, yeah. Do it, so give me like, a history check or something. Yeah, so it's like on the one hand, that's a legit point. Like, I mean, okay, um, you know, I'm Thorin. I don't know what this guy knows. Like, I'm playing a character, but that character's smarter than me or wiser than me or more charming than me or stronger than me, whatever. That's the whole point of the game, right? You're playing a character that has different attributes than you do. Yeah. So that's a... You know, from a certain point of view, you could just resolve all these with, like, intelligence checks or maybe give them a chance to take a check to kind of get a hint or yes. tell them what they would know about it. On the other hand, I think the value in a puzzle is engaging the player. Yeah. Because I think it's taking it away from the mechanics of the game. And you could argue that it takes you away from the character, too. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it sometimes. What to have I'm saying, to have, yeah, yeah. Where I think you can meet that in the middle is what we were saying with some of the physical representations of it. So you were saying, like, get a, literally a puzzle that's on the table or a picture or the battle mat itself and bring the literally the characters into the puzzle in a way. You know, make it much more, much larger than just a mental sphinx riddle. You know, make it bigger, make it more, like, environmentally impactful. So, everything else. When I was yeah, when, uh, when I was wrapping up uh, on my final point there was if you're it's the if the riddle stalling that's where I'd go for the that sounds reasonable answer. Not that I would just take anything. I do like your idea. Yes, that's absolutely correct. You could have a character with an obscene intelligence or wisdom, and it, yeah, they, they can do uh, theoretical physics. I mean, I'm not going to throw a math problem out to like figure this out. And you're like, well, I have an 11 intelligence and my character has like, you know, 189 IQ. So he could do this underwater with a bucket over his head. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't uh, I would point them more. So I well, giving them any kind of hint that would tip the riddle. I might help them eliminate things. And say, well, what do you think about this? And I'm like, no, your character doesn't believe you're going in the right direction. Or that might make sense. Like you're on the right track. I mean, it's, it, maybe that's a good idea. Like you're like, uh, I, it kind of came up in that last thing we were talking about. Maybe that's when you involve an intelligence check or a history check or an investigation check where, okay, if they make the check, you give them a hint towards solving the puzzle or solving the room. Mm. You know, that way you're not, that way it's not entirely decided by just a skill check, but a skill, but you can still, you can still incorporate the character abilities. Because if you get trapped in just using your ability checks, what's going to happen? Your intelligence or wisdom-based characters will take over the challenge, and everybody yeah. else, your warlock's going to be standing like, darf, I'm handsome. And, you know. It goes back to, I think it goes back perfectly to uh, the previous episode when we were talking about our nautical adventures. And one of the things that is cool is you're on the boat and you got the cannon and you have to, you know, you have to hoist the main sail. But my character can throw a fireball. That's so much cooler. And I'm limited by that. So I think anything like this, especially on the riddles and puzzles sides, if you can marry those two things where it's the character and the player both being involved. And that's where I think when you have much more three dimensional things or or. The, the terrain or environment itself is the puzzle, I think, can become a little bit more. Um, or it was clues that they had found throughout the game 
things that bring the character adventure into the puzzle and the and the, the solving of that. So just to make sure we answer Joe Nathan's questions here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you design them? We talked about kind of what we want or don't want, but when you come time to build a puzzle, I know for me when I have built puzzles before, mostly in older campaigns, it's just kind of been like everything else I do. It's just, well, hey, you know, you're in, you're 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 in this uh, you know you're coming upon a door and there's some trick to the door and it turns out the answer is not to try to go through the door it's to try to find the secret door because if you go through the main door it's going to crush you or something like i just kind of make up <laughs> stuff on the spot occasionally i steal some things from from dragon magazine or something how do you guys design puzzles as i said earlier i like to start with the answer like what would be the solution to the problem is it pulling certain levers in an order is it going to be moving pillars around is it going to be saying a phrase and let you have that, I kind of work backwards. I would avoid, avoid anything that, kind of like with a story, if it's difficult for you to explain, it's probably extremely difficult for your players to solve. So when you say work backwards, like do you sometimes mean like as far as like how do you put clues in or how do they, like what leads them to that answer? I want to start with, okay, so first question, what does solving this riddle accomplish? Does it open the door? Yeah. Does it summon the spirit who then you can talk to in the temple? Etc. So how are we going to get to that? Well, okay, they need to, okay, say the riddle was this. The riddle was how to do the ritual in the church correctly to summon the ghost. And they have to do everything in an order. Well, how are they going to figure this out? Well, actually, this is in Baldur's Gate, uh, the expanded version for the PC for back in the day. Like, you had to get a book, a bell, you had to find the prayers, and then you had to go through each of the steps. And that leads up to your solution. So once you know what your solution is, you're like, well, how do you do this? How many steps do we want? And I kind of ask myself, can I also involve everybody in this? So if you have a ritual with like, say, I don't know, how many players do I have? Well, it'll have my five players and my five steps. You know, Bonnie can ring the bell and Dave can say <laughs> the prayer out loud. And Or the yeah. old, everyone's got to know what pedestal to stand on and there's five that need to be stood on. Yeah, I would say I'm I'm developing if if I am creating any puzzles, which again I don't do a lot of, but if I am creating something, I'm usually doing it where everyone is going to be involved, and it's going to be a group effort and not just mental. And I will give three examples here that I think we can all understand in terms of the best way to do a puzzle down to the worst way to do a puzzle in game. And some of them work awesome in their respective genres, but not in-game. So the best, most immersive, would be the end part of The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones, where he has the journal and he has to go through the penitent man will pass and step in the footsteps of God. And mm -hmm. it has to be in a certain alphabet, right? And then he has to choose the correct goblet. Sure, and all of, these, all of these have massive threat involved, right? Of death. Death is on every well, single one of them. Every, single, every one. single one. Every single one. Terrible death traps. If they still don't answer how he knows how to commando roll after the penitent man kneels, but I, oh, I will let that lie. That one? I will let that lie. You don't know that you. What? That is actually. So. Stop. Stop. You're going to try to back this up. You're going to say that there's some historical precedent for this. Well, there is. Because okay. the, 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 the second blade comes up in front of him. Yeah. And it's actually a little bit, uh, well, it, so in Islam, when you're penitent, you kneel and then lean forward. So the Christian man kneels and he's missed by the top blade and by the front blade. The Muslim leans forward 
and he gets caught by the front blade. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now, why Indiana Jones had a commando roll over that, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe yeah. he was just all right. balanced. Oh, I, feel like, I cool. feel like I thought it would look cool. They're like, do this. So, <laughs> most immersive Last Crusade, if you're developing a puzzle where it is very involved, the environment, the terrain, the clues that you had through the adventure, all of that. The medium immersive, let's say, or second most immersive, would be the fifth element at the end. Mm. When they have the four different element, uh, little stone triangle numbers, right? And each of them is an element. So they find fire and water and wind and all of that. And then she becomes the fifth and yay. That's cool. And that's a, but that's a little more mental. And that's a little less, that's going to rely more on the people that can figure out riddles and a little less on people that aren't maybe as good as that. So they'll feel left out. I think, and I the think work- it, relies, it relies mostly on people who can follow a narrative because you get to that point, you put the rocks that, in the right place, right. what has to happen. You got to kiss, you got to kiss the love interest. Right, exactly. Right. And the worst way to do it, which is an awesome scene and it's great and I love it, but terrible in your game is the Lord of the Rings at the Mines of Moria, where speak friend and enter. I have problems hours trying to figure out how to say all these things. And it's just the lock, right? That's don't <laughs> right. do that in your game. That's a terrible right. possibility. Because Gandalf, who's the greatest wizard in that universe or one of them, and he was actually a angel who came down in the form of a wizard, didn't know the elven word for friend. Of course, that makes well, perfect well, no, sense. No, he, he, no, he, he knew he it. Did, he's going to figure it out. Yeah, he, he was yeah, saying how he was saying all the ways to to say to enter into a place instead of realizing speak friend. Yeah, that's that riddle. I, I am almost positive he looked at that and he's like, oh, I'm not familiar with this dialect of Elvish, and I'm like, what? Okay, in uh, the movie, the I don't remember hell? how they do, I don't remember how they do it in the book, but in the movie, he just can't figure it out for like eight hours, and then right oh, before right before sundown, he figures it out. Yeah. And that's so that's not a great way to do it in your game. So don't do just the riddle at that. You're just staring at your players while they can't figure it out. Make it more immersive. Bring them back. Bring them into that world. And that one's more a password with a password reminder. Yeah, that's really what that right. one is. That was really like there's a password and here's your password reminder. Birthday. In case our elven friends forget the password. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, Christ. You still need the password to begin with. So, yeah, to wrap up on this, so, okay, so that's how you design them. Where and when do you like to use them? Like, I know for me, I like to kind of use puzzles uh, to open doors, when you hit a point where you need to progress. Where do you guys like to use them? I like to put that in my encounter mix. So that helps break it up. So we have, uh, you know, perhaps some traveling, some role play, a combat, and here's a puzzle. So it's one of the things I've... um, come to appreciate with gaming is that a good battle scene is more enjoyed if it's not followed by like 11 other battle scenes true yeah yeah i can see that i gotta break it up a little bit because honest to god it's like if the whole game is hacking and slashing how are you ever going to have a really awesome combat moment when someone rolls a really really big natural 20 no Maybe some people will remember that, but like, I mean, have, like yeah, like you don't want your game to just be Diablo because while that's fun in Diablo, it really doesn't scratch the surface of what's fun in D and D. That's yeah, D- Diablo was a lot of fun, but that was you staying up late, you know, farming for gold in the next page. 
Yeah, it's not the same thing. It's not it's not interactive. You can get to a different level with a with a with a real at the table or at, or on roll twenty or something RPG because you can mix it up and do more creative things than just spam the attack button. And then just his last question, I think we actually got this one. So should it be paired with a threat? Tony says yes. You should probably have you know solve the riddle or fight the monster. A lot of the players I, I'm, I've played with are like, well, yeah, we're just gonna fight the monster. <laughs> the answer is Penny. What? That's not the answer. Oh, what a shame. You know, it's like the meme. It's it's like the meme with the guy cocking the shotgun. Shame. You know, <laughs> that's most of the players I've played with. You know, it's like, oh, oh, what a shame. I gotta go. We gotta go fight the monster now. All right, or, we got this. Or alternatively. They have to be in a specific place when they answer the riddle, and that person gets blasted by something they're not resistant to. That's that's better. That's my psychic or, damage coming in. Or, so, Thorin, this kind of goes to the question before where you said, where do you put them? And I think you were you were more on, on point with the way I was going. Is where would, a puzzle, where would a puzzle be? It's somewhere where someone is trying to stop anyone from coming in. They're trying to allow only certain people in. So you're trying to get into something, whether that's through a door, into a safe, into the crypt, whatever. So another way that you can increase the threat is you lose whatever is in the vault. The vault itself burns up and you've now lost whatever was in there, you know. Now, that is a way to piss your players (laughs) off, too. More but, flashbacks to the last to the last Curse of Strahd game where the, the wagon. wagon exploded. Don't worry. There wasn't anything crazy awesome in the wagon, but, you know. Yeah. There was a wagon. It was wheels, man. They're going to have wheels. It was cool, and the paladin was going to cast his uh, steed, and you guys could have had a sweet-ass wagon. It turned uh, yeah. into a Hussite battle wagon with a bunch of pole arms. <laughs> and, sorry, you got to be a real history nerd. The, artificer starts, uh, the artificer starts armoring the wagon. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, Dave. Let's find the time stone. We'll fix that in a GIF. No problem. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. All right. So I think we we covered the puzzles and how we use them. Let's touch on the one that's a little bit related. A little more about how to do s- skill challenges, but make them a puzzle. And here's the question: Rituals as a puzzle or skill challenge in 5e. I do not have a name on this one, so I'm sorry, uh, whoever sent this in. Thank you very much for the suggestion. And next time you leave your name, we'll drop your name in the show. Message is, I watched and read Lunch Break Heroes, The Binding of Vampire, and I loved the ritual concept. I'm trying to develop a similar one for my campaign, but I'm having a hard time finding a good template or formula for it. Any suggestions? So what he's really asking is, okay, so when you have a ritual that's got to be a little more involved, like they, like you really need to do a certain number of things. And I have to admit, I've never seen Lunch Break Heroes, The Bonding of Vampire. So if you have, I, I apologize. Have you seen it, anyone? It's great. Mm-hmm. Love it. I love really? Lunch Break Heroes. Yeah. He's so, my I go-to mean, guy for Curse of Strahd stuff. So do you know this? Do you know this? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's built a, a a whole additional uh, big boss battle kind of thing where you have to bind uh, this entity, uh, vamp- in essence, the initial vampire kind of thing. So it's like this crazy, you know, destroy your face uh, enemy that you can't fight, but you can try to bind him. Uh, mm. But in essence, he's creating a round to round ritual based mechanic to do this while a fight is is happening. But essentially, so I guess we're looking for a template here for how do you do a multi-step ritual to bind something. Now, I have done some things like that before. I think, again, it starts with the, what do you, you know, like Tony was saying with a puzzle, it is sort of a puzzle. It's okay, so where do you want to get to and what are the steps that make sense in this world to get there? 
I did a couple of multi-part skill challenges in my last uh, 5e campaign when we were traveling of really hostile terrain, when you guys were training using the one artifact home, when you were trying to navigate the ship during the race. And what I would do in those situations is if we're trying to really include everybody, because we have to be careful. Like, I, I don't know how this was handled in, in this uh, situation, but I wouldn't want to like you something, something really awesome could be going on. I remember like one point Thorne was running a Star Wars game and he did a pod race and the pod race itself was really awesome for like the two people who were involved and the other people were like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do remember. I remember I did like a motorcycle challenge. Yeah. I remember, I remember, but yeah, you only had one guy riding the bike and no one else could really do anything. So, I mean, lessons learned. You got to get everyone involved. Other people were involved in the beginning as far as building the bike, and you had to make some choices as far as how you were going to build the bike. But yeah, it didn't It didn't really involve everyone the way it could have. So mm. if it's going to come down to one or two or three out of, like, say, six people who are involved, don't let that skill challenge be particularly long. But if you want a particularly uh, longer skill challenge where this is going to go on for rounds upon rounds, then you want to have uh, it play on different skills that other characters possess or give them options on which skills to run to. So to, to get back to kind of the specific question, how would you adapt the ritual? So it's kind of a multi-part puzzle or skill challenge that involves all the players, like you're saying. Okay, so a vampire's coming. We can't kill it. We have non -magic, no magic weapons because we're in Dave's campaign and he doesn't believe in this. So, <laughs> no, actually, we're tripping in magic weapons now. This is like a year later. It's fantastic. But <laughs> so, so let's do some strength checks. So... We have to grapple with it, we have to restrain the monster so it doesn't eat our face. So we have a couple guys do that, like, so Hawk and Scar are, are, are wrapping up with this guy to at least hold him in place. Maybe they're taking damage, but he's not eating the cleric's head. Then a cleric and maybe the warlock are doing some arcane things to actually put the binding together. The artificer is maybe making a circle around and the rogue is maybe running back and forth getting components. Something to that effect. I mean, I, I would have this figured out before you get to the moment or it's going to get kooky. Kind oh of no, what you have characters to, going to do. Yeah, you have to build out the mechanics of this. This is similar to like when I was doing like the wrestling match and stuff. One, you have to get everybody involved, like you guys said. Uh, and two, and you have to have at least a skeleton of the mechanics. Uh, I'll go back to my finale of my Pathfinder campaign. Uh, there was the final battle. They they found the evil cleric. He was performing the ritual to become, you know, rise of the dragon king. And he had the dragons that he had matured. They were one of each chromatic dragon there on the parapets of the tower. And he was completely surrounded in an impenetrable uh, in essence, a globe of invulnerability to all things, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was he was he was the most heavy plot armor you could get. But the one of the wizards that they had had found a scroll that could work. The incantations were a way to start to take down the the his force field and then break the ritual. And that was an escalating DC check of Arcana and things of that nature. The nice thing I had, and then they could also fight the dragons who were assisting in the ritual with their magic. Uh, so some of the melee characters could do that. But what I did have, which was an interesting thing, which made it even even nicer to play with, was this was the time when I had both 
all the players playing two characters. So I had them playing all of their characters, and then I had handed out the other team of pregens of the wizard and the rogue, but not to the same classes. So the rogue was also playing the other wizard, and the wizard was playing the other fighter, and the cleric was playing the thief. So they could all then start to play with other class features that they hadn't as well. So they weren't just sitting there reading the scroll, you know. But yeah, you need to work out all of the mechanics of it. Uh, I would have things like escalating DCs for failures so you don't have single point failures, but there is consequence to that. I would have a limited number of rounds that this thing is going to happen for. And then if it goes off, the ritual has to go off. You have to, you can't say, the, you know, the world will end and then be like, well, but he only gained, you know, claws. You know, it has to be something significant, whatever it, the threat. It, it, it's like Chekhov's gun. Like, if you introduce the world's going to end, you have to use the world's going to end if they don't stop it. Yeah, yeah, it has to kind of happen. So, for me, if I was going to do this kind of thing, I would actually, in this case, I would start from the end. So, if I knew, for instance, that I had this, a vampire or an elder spirit that had to be bound or you have this you know, big boss, you need to unlock his shields before you can attack him. Yeah. I would start by saying, okay, what are some cool things I could have them do that should lead to this? So I'd actually start with the narrative side of it. And I've got shelves of books of like old magic incantations and stuff, stuff that I can go to to pull some really weird stuff into the game that has some historical significance in yeah. order to, 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 make it, to, to make it feel a little more real, to make it feel a little less mundane than just, hey, I just use my powers. Maybe you got to, you know, get a pig and, and read its entrails or something. Or, <laughs> you know, you've got to make a certain witch bottle or something. At the very least, I feel like you should need to get his animal with a power and smash it to bring the shell down. But I would think of, okay, so what are, like, if you have five players, what are five cool things they can do that come together to be the ritual bring this together? To, 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 to break the shield or to bind this vampire. Maybe some of them are drawing the sigils. Some of them are holding the are, are holding the, va the vampire in place or the evil spirit in place or fighting off the minions. Uh, maybe some of them are doing the incantation and then someone's got to smash a skull or something. But just think about what, what cool stuff could be part of this ritual. And if you're looking for ideas, you know, look at some books of magic. You know, like I said, look, dig up some spells on the internet and see what you could pull in from there just to bring in some stuff that is more magic, like like real world magic-y, ritually, than, hey, I just cast Dispel Magic. And I would start from there, and then I would give everything sort of a DC or a thing that has to be done or sacrificed to do it, so they each have actions they have to take to do it. I would probably try to make this something that takes, everyone should have to do more than one thing. Like, you want this to take a few rounds. So everyone has to do something for three or four to five rounds in a row just so they're engaged in it and it, it has some build-up before the payoff and then they do it all okay the ritual goes off i would probably not require everyone to do skill checks because when you're doing when, when they're doing cool things adding a skill check sometimes ruins it you know you might have them do the cool thing and then make them make a skill check and they fail well they still did the cool thing but they didn't do it well enough like Okay. Yeah, I think it depends on which what what you're doing in there, right? Yeah. But to your point too, I think that's a, a great point because we're talking about like bringing more immersion to the world, making the world more organic, feel real, that verisimilitude. 
And that's a perfect example because we're in worlds where this is super high magic, you know, where clerics are bringing people back from the dead and you're casting fireballs and you're plane shifting. So if you're doing something that's going to have to take like five rounds to get this thing off, right, and it's a whole ritual, it needs to be some kind of crazy ass magic that you can't just find in the PHB, right? It has to be yeah. something bigger. Right. And that's where I think a lot of that stuff can come into play. Why you would need such crazy material components or something. Right. And maybe and you had to get them components coming in. Maybe that was part of the quest. Right. Right. Exactly. And if you're going to go through all that trouble, you should really have it have a cinematic flair. Yes. I mean, it, it's got to be you have to sell this. You need to sell what, to the players why they want to do this, why it's so important. I don't know if I would go with the world ending thing that uh, stakes are really a little too high there. It's super high. <laughs> yeah. Bad news, guys. I know you have level 14 characters, but the world ended. Ah, forget all your NPCs. You have well, no contacts now. And that's why I'd say if you have them jump through a bunch of hoops to do a ritual, you probably shouldn't need make them do that many rolls or make the rolls very difficult. You know, you probably, the people doing the incantation maybe need to make an arcana check, but maybe there's two of them. So the person with the high arcana has help, and maybe there's a bard standing by to inspire them if they need it. If you're going to do the cool ritual and they did all the steps, you might want a roll or two, but you want to let them succeed. Because, you know, if they did the, that's the whole point of a ritual. If you did it right, it works, you know? It's not the same, it's not necessarily an attack roll. It's not like, oh, you tried, but you, you know, he dodged out of the way. If you do the ritual right, it should work. You make the ritual interesting, make them jump through some hoops to do it. And then either either they don't need a roll or you just make sure they can make the roll. You know, you let them, you let them put in some layers of fail safe. And don't have Peter Parker there to keep talking to you, asking questions when you're trying to, you know, craft that spell. Because then the multiverse <laughs> will fracture. No maybe that movie. maybe that's the end of the ritual. The multiverse has has completely opened. <laughs> no one's seen that movie. I mean, I think it'd be more like don't have Star Lord show up and make the guy, you know, and, and punch the guy until he wakes up to, oh, like, to ask him what happened terrible. to his girlfriend. He's literally that one player, right? Yes, <laughs> it's the one player. I'm gonna punch it anyway. No, we got a ritual. No, I'm punching. Was punching part of the ritual? Well, maybe I should have made it part of the ritual. 20. Got a nat 20. I got, I got a natural 20 casting fist. <laughs> so with that, you were showing, talking about how, you know, these the traps earlier had, they were all life and death and super high stakes. Yeah, I would agree with Thorne because you know what? Exactly how bad would have Last Crusade sucked had Indiana Jones died on the first trap? Right. I mean, if you've done all yeah. that stuff and then just you blow the rolls and you lose, it sucks. Like we always say there should be the risk of death and there should be. In situations like combat, where there's a lot of rules and there's, no, there's and a lot of rules. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I was saying with my with the ritual that I had run. The, yeah. big, the big, big ritual was it wasn't just a fail, but what it did was the the DC started to ascend in essence in difficulty. For instance, uh, we can say this now because the narrative has continued onwards. But Hawk and Sir Scar in the Strahd campaign had been the way I played the Dark Powers was if you had failed your charisma check, you were supposed to be going to chaotic evil immediately. It was just an immediate alignment shift. I thought that was nonsensical. It didn't make any sense to me, right? I like the one ring idea. I like temptation. I like corruption over time. So I had them start every day because they were the ones that failed those roles. 
every day they had to have a wisdom safe. And I started at DC 10, I think it was, but each failure it went up to and it went up to and it went up to. So it's not a single point, it's multiples. And there's yeah. there's a building consequence to that. So the same with something like a ritual, don't make it off one skill check, but the failed skill check, and maybe if it's a really bad fail, well, that that makes the ritual have to take a little longer or something, you know? Yeah, there can be some penalty. I mean, there are different approaches to it. It depends on what is the consequence and what are you doing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're doing the big, cool ritual, set them up so they can succeed. You don't want to just have a natural one ruin what's happening now and after they've gone through all that work. Yeah. Yeah, you know, sometimes work, sometimes putting in the work is more important than making the rule. Now, <laughs> with what you were doing with Scar and with, with Sir Scar and Hulk, that's a little different because, okay, they could have become chaotic evil right away, which really probably would have ruined the story. Right. Those are not chaotic evil characters. I don't think that would have been a good twist, you know? Wrestler, serial killer. The character pushing them to take their deals because he's already taken a deal. And what's wrong with the deal? <laughs> and it's it's such a so that's a one role that you get, and yeah. that's a that's a fail, and you immediately become just complete chaos. You become the Joker, and that's just like wait, what? Like that's there's no narrative there. There's no how much story did we lose out on by if we went that way? A it, ton. It could be cool with a different group could be cool with this group in a different playthrough. It would not have been cool with this group in the game we're playing. That right. was the thing. Right. I think you made the right decision there. Yeah, no, if I had gone chaotic evil, that would have gotten off the rails incredibly quickly. I would be killing people in town. I'd be like, all right, yeah, you got up. What do you got? You have nothing to sell me? Oh, break his neck. Like, you know, it would have been. <laughs> you walk in, you grab an orphan, you, you, you break him over your knee, say, see, that's how it's done. Yeah, it holds the power of northern wrestling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, where are their money? Oh, you have all these kids? Let me also help with the torture. <laughs> you what know, like, wait, what? So, like, you need to, to calm down. You're, you're out of hand. <laughs> so same thing. You can absolutely involve the dice, but don't make, never make anything on single point fails, you know? Let yeah. that stuff build. Other than attack rolls. Those are the only single point fails you get. <laughs> And then then you you have hit points you can absorb some hits you can you yeah can exactly yeah. there's some build in there. there there's some build in drama there to get some some wins and losses out of it <laughs> something that is just one roll you die or make the save or you die and it's a hard save I still remember there was one game we played and Tony and I were playing this game and the DM had us flushed through pipes like we were being flushed out of out of like a mountain like like through like through like a torrent of water like Indiana like like that one scene in Indiana Jones the water comes pouring through yeah. Yeah. I wound up in the water and he's like, well, make a save, make a save, make a save. And like, I made some saves, but I failed most of the saves. And then in the end, I die. He's like, well, it's your fault. You couldn't make a save. It is not my fault. I couldn't make a save. That's the that dice. Is, it was like a level three character with second edition saves. Like they're all like 15 and higher. Like, There's also a reason I, uh, I've now played with Thorin enough times. I know why his players oftentimes take the lucky feat. Cause you know, he gets cold dice sometimes. So like, that's not cool, man. And like, if that, yeah, if that session happens when you get some cold dice, that's just like, come on, that's that sucks. It's not, it's not <laughs> satisfying to die to luck. It's fine if you die to your own mistakes, you did something stupid, you know, you couldn't win the battle. That's a little different. But if it's just yeah. like, well, yeah, just I just blew that roll, okay, you're dead. Or I blew these three rolls, okay, you're dead. Especially if they're hard rolls. Like, you know, too many DMs want you to make six rolls and have three of them be successes, and they set the DC to 15. Yeah. Like, 
that's loading the dice against your players. You should you should only get like one to two successes on a DC 15 roll with no modifiers. Like you got to roll, roll 15 or higher. Out of six rolls, you're only going to succeed a couple times if that's if, if if that's the number. Like it doesn't work the way some DMs think it works. But okay, that's that's a little bit of an aside there. Let's cover the <laughs> last question we had. Again, no uh, no name on this one, but they want to know about weather. So the so yeah, so let's let's make this really interesting and spend the end of this podcast talking about the weather. <laughs> well, you'll maybe see coming in from the northwest, really. Uh, maybe if a... it was raining men. <laughs> it could be. You know, it depends how hardcore your setting gets, right? I mean, what do you want? Raining men's going to be pretty damaging. Are you, you asking for a second intro song, Tony? I mean, if we had prepped it, it would have been pretty awesome. But <laughs> I think Dave could hit "Raining Men" right off the top. I mean, it's raining men. Yeah, absolutely. Come on. <laughs> I've been to a wedding or two. All right, I know. All right, here's the question: How do you make weather a more impactful element in the game? I.e., the rain and thunderstorms in Barovia, or the heat in the of the desert of desolation. How do you make that matter more? This is interesting for me because just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the bad day for the Black Dragon. We had the article describing how the Black Dragon lost, and it came up in the podcast too. And I talked about some mistakes I made in that article with the Black Dragon. And one of our readers chimed in with a comment and said, well, number one, he didn't he felt like my CR wasn't high enough. But two, the Black Dragon's lair is supposed to be obscured by fog. And this fog effect is supposed to, number one, let the dragon get right next to the party before they can see it. Yeah. And number two, make it hard for the party to see more than like 30 feet away. Absolutely. I've totally forgotten that. And that is a great example of how you can use weather to make your encounters more deadly. No, I mean, to. to <laughs> I mean, uh, interesting. Uh, to, 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 to increase the immersion. Yes. <laughs> and keep your dragons alive. But it's, you know, it's a great question because we don't think of weather. And I'll tell you, when I was designing that Black Dragon encounter, I designed it around the idea that you guys could get up in the air and see the dragon in a distance. And you could see its lair, which was a giant undead tree, like a tree the size of like a large hill or a small mountain. I built it around the idea that you guys could see that from a distance and use that as a marker. And I didn't really think about all the fog that should be in that swamp and the fog that should be around the tree. So when you got there, I didn't use that weather element that could have made the combat much more interesting. So, you know, this is this is a great example of how, you know, you sometimes we often forget about weather and the effect it has. Man, that would have changed. See. That would have changed the whole episode, dude. Oh, my God. That would have been. Yeah, we would probably be dead. Because <laughs> fog, 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 no, uh, fog is no joke. Uh, because, yeah, we'd be all be rolling at disadvantage with pretty much everything. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I actually used fog in an encounter just a few sessions before that. The encounter, the attack on um, yes, the counts, yeah, on the, on the town. Yes, right. yeah, but I just would have controlled weather and moved that shit out of there. So jokes on him. You could not. I, I actually don't think you could remove the weather that is a lair effect from a layering dragon. I'd have to dig into it, but I think that's an unnatural effect. That's not a natural weather. Possible. I know if you cast fog cloud, it can be dispersed, but it has to be uh, a wind of more than 10 miles an hour. I don't know why I would know that spell so intimately right now. Plus, but did you have control weather memorized? <laughs> I'm a storm giant. Oh, you have it as an innate ability. Ah, good point. Uh, let's see here. Well, uh, that's fine. I make it audibly yeah. cold, gales. Yeah, I could have got rid of the fog. But it would have required the party to think of that, too, though. So that's a good point, Thor, though. Well, yeah. It would have been a great thing to make them think of. I actually don't know if it would have allowed that, because it might have ruled that the Black Dragon's lair effect overwhelmed the Storm Giant's innate ability, is what I might have gone with. 
Because uh, the black dragon, he changes, he already changes the environment. So can you just change it back with your own magic? I don't know. He's yeah. living there for a few hundred years. Kind of depends on the yeah. Depends on the on the the session on the what yeah. the encounter. So how do you what do you guys do with weather? How do you use weather to make your sessions more immersive and make it more more impactful? Well, I don't let the weather save my dragons, but I uh, do think it's a building block of my description when we're starting travel. So, I mean, like, literally, we're starting travel. Like, what do I start with? Well, it's night, it's cold, it's autumn. Those are really relatable story building blocks you could throw out there. I think that's just, if you want to make your world feel a little bit more real, then that's how you go about it. Uh, at more advanced stages, yes, there can be skill challenges surrounding the fact, like, you're trying to navigate through the woods and it's pouring rain, or, you know, you got caught in a snowstorm and you're lost, or you're out in the jungle and it's unbearably hot and you have to make the players deal with that. So the weather could be the uh, a completely different adversary for the party, make them equip for it, make them prepare for it, make them changing their travel tactics around it. We did that several times at Storm King Slender. I mean, we had weather encounters. We were climbing the mountains in the Ten Towns area. We had weather encounters on the ship that required us to all work together to make a skill challenge to survive them. I mean, you see, you did do it quite a bit there. Well, I feel it's a real disservice to the game if there's virtually no difference in how, what's going on between you know, your parties out there in the woods and it's spring and you're up around the Ten Towns, you know, and it's, you know, nine degrees in you know at high noon on the warmest day of the year i mean <laughs> that really does change all your dynamics the weather of course your uh, like your environment can change the structure of uh, your towns your encounters travel i mean it, it really does spiral into everything on you know it, it shapes and forms the map itself it's also a great way just to spice up travel I mean, travel can have random encounters and random weather, and it's another thing you can kind of throw out there to make that interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I um, It's funny. I have a, three different ways that I have played with weather in three different campaigns. So with Slaver's Bay, I was using weather as a completely just, like what we're talking about tonight, just a way to make the world feel a little more real. Now, I don't, it was kind of an experiment, so I don't know if it worked or not, but it, Every session, I would just roll a percentile dice, and I had to roll under a certain amount because it was kind of a dry area. It was, you know, deserty. Um, I had to roll under a certain number for any rain to happen. Other than that, it was dusty and dry. So some days there would be a light mist or a little bit of a rain, but then most other days it was dry. So I used it as kind of a random just to create a sense of things are not always just the same. I wake up in the morning and this static world exists for me to go and do things in. With Barovia, it's funny because I haven't played with the weather at all. I've played a little bit with the darkness and I played a little bit with the weather when you guys ascended Mount Gacchus to go towards the Amber Temple. Outside of that, I haven't really played with rain and thunderstorms and things like that. But I've tried to play with the darkness, in essence, as a immersive tool and a way to to create some some problems. Going back, I would have retconned and utilized dark vision appropriately, where in those types of darknesses, you still have disadvantage on perception checks. 
uh, which I think is a very valid, uh, it's a it's a good rule that we kind of overlook a lot of times with that. I mean, dark vision becomes overpowered in part because people don't consider the range limit, which is usually for most for most races is not that far. And right. two, you're still you still don't see that well if I remember. No, you suppose like, all perception checks are still rolled at disadvantage unless there is yeah. illumination. You know, you see shapes and things like that in grays, but you're not seeing things it's like way like they say like a cat sees or whatever. But the third one is in rhyme of the Frost Maiden, where I am using weather extensively because of its complete deadliness. Again, that's part <laughs> of an immersive technique to make them realize where they are in this Arctic tundra under this, the rhyme of the Frost Maiden herself, but a way to create an environmental impediment to just walking around. But you can easily do that with thunderstorms, with mudslides, with scorching heat, like in dark sun or something, right? Like, same idea. Let me ask a contrarian question. Oh. If you have X amount of time to gain, yeah. how much of that time do you want to spend dealing with the weather versus moving your plot forward or engaging with monsters and other things in, in other encounters. Because I think, you know, we talk about the weather being something that, okay, adds a little bit of similitude to your world, it brings your world to life. But the more you have to worry about the weather, the more of your game you spend focusing on the weather, well, it's kind of like a conversation about the weather, the joke we opened up this, this, this section with, right? Someone who makes small talk about the weather is usually pretty boring. That's not what anyone really wants to talk about. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're spending a quarter of your game session dealing with the weather instead of moving your plot forward, does that make it a boring game? Like, is that the best way you can spend your time? I feel like you spend a quarter of your game, it would be a mistake. Could you do a weather encounter and just throw that into the mix as well? Like I was saying, like you're going to do some role play and then you're going to do some travel and then maybe your travel encounter has a weather component to it. Then you get to the puzzle and the battle. Mm. I mean, you could use that to add another dimension to your game. I wouldn't lean too heavily on it, but I mean, it, it's certainly a real pillar of the description. Because it's so yeah, relatable, yeah. it's something we deal with every day. Yeah, no, Thor, I would I would agree with you. Uh, you don't want to be spending a ton of time on weather and oh man, we gotta get a my umbrella is broken. I we gotta get a new umbrella, right? Well, like my galoshes. Yeah, like let's go find a store that's got a number, right? Like I mean, that might be cool for your players. Like, and if it is, then go with it. But no, what yeah. I'm using it more for is in the same way that I'll use a lot of my descriptors. I do a lot of that stuff. I, I really front load it in the beginning of the game. Uh, like, for instance, with Barovia, with the darkness and the gothic feel and that, I did a lot of that in the beginning. So I don't have to, like, every day, you guys know it's dark there. You know it's perpetual twilight. You know it's cold. You know, all these things. In the beginning, though, I specifically, I was talking about the moon through the skeletal trees and the reflection in the puddles and the dirt road and all of that stuff to give this sense and the baying of the wolves. You know, baying of wolves now, you guys could give two shits. You'll just like, you know, Eldritch Blast an entire pack away, you know what I mean? But front-loading it gave the, it it created the sense of this is the world that we're playing in. In the same way with Frostmaiden, I put them through a couple weather encounters with blizzards or, you know, uh, super low temperatures, things like that, or, you know, being near water where it'll put hypothermia. I'm not going to do that when they're level five, though, in the same yeah. way, you know, but when I front load it, it I think for me, I think it helps to create the world that they're playing in. And then they're going to approach the world 
in that way. And then you can let some of that stuff go to the background. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you took care of that. No problem. Let's let's move on now. I think that's fair. I think it's a scene setting tool. It's really good. It is something you can overdo, I think. And that's just kind of why I was asking that question. Because, you know, you want to think about how much of my time, how much of my players' time am I making them spend remember, you know, remembering their coats? <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> like just some, like, mundane stuff that maybe isn't super heroic. Plus, I mean, you can also overcome it pretty quickly a little later with, like, you know, rings of adaptation and things like that. Things right. that let you ignore weather. Yeah. But, you know, I think adding it as that descriptive value, I think, is really good. Throwing in some things where they need to worry about it is good. If they need to spend time every session on it, keep in mind you've now made your weather a character in your story. So make sure that's worthwhile. You know, that's something you got to keep in mind, I think. You, know, you don't want to overdo it if you have more epic things to do, because if you're constantly making them struggle with the weather, your weather is now a character. Can you pay off? Unless maybe, like, your big bads are you have to, like, do the peace treaty between the heat miser and the cold miser. Like, if that's something, like, that well, pays off. weather. That's, I mean, it's, or, especially in a Christmas game. Weather has to be a, like a that's the that's the big bad is the weather that's it or or maybe Cobra's weather dominator got split into three pieces Ooh. across the world they have to bring them all together oh and they're and then they're also making Serpentor oh. we'll get to that next episode oh, there you one go. of the that's best that's story that's arcs the, in that whole show the gamification of GI Joe I've got them I play World of Tanks online on console and they have GI Joe all over that and I gotta admit it's kind of cool when you put Cobra in a Cobra vehicle, and he starts, you know, saying, you know, for Cobra, and things yeah. like that. It is pretty neat. So, you know, that's But neat. has any of those tanks ever hit anything? They have. Actually, they hit pretty hard. They, they gave him some cool stuff. Uh, the Hiss tank is in there. That's pretty neat if you're a lover of G.I. Joe. Not so much if you're a lover of real historical combat, which is sort of how the game started off. It's a bit of a trade-off, but I'm enjoying it. So, all right. We've been talking about this for a little while, so let me wrap up with our final thoughts. And what are maybe some touches you do, some things you add to make your worlds more immersive, more interactive in this way? Well, if we're going to do traps or rituals or weather challenges, the real value of that is that's something you could pull all the party in. I, I like that we're not going to do heavy DCs on these. I don't want to do single points or... Uh, be in a situation they fail two or three, two out of three uh, high skill challenges. Then, like, bad news, you fell into the lava and you're dead. Womp womp. Because that really does murder that narrative you've been working on for the last eight months. So I would certainly avoid that. Um, the weather can be a fantastic component as adding flavor to your game by environments. But rituals, you can have interactive components to it. And with riddles, there's a lot of different ways you can handle it. You can go off on a tangent and give them multiple rounds of riddles, or you can get everybody together to actually put together a puzzle. Just try to make it as fun as possible. Yeah. I mean, every sword and sorcery book and fantasy book and movie and TV show and everything has all of these aspects in it. It has all of the action and the fighting and the, the drama and the intrigue, but it has weird puzzles that they come across or riddles it has rituals that they have to either create or stop and it has weather things that affect them so i would say with puzzles try to get the whole party involved i would go back to my ideas of 
the last crusade being the best idea. Uh, <laughs> the fifth element being your middle of the ground is a little more mental based. A couple players will be able to handle it without all the party. And then the Lord of the Rings one at the Mines of Moria, where you got to speak friend and enter. Don't do that one, but make it part of the whole game. Use some of the mechanics of the system to create more of the puzzle. Make it a physical manifestation. Make it an actual puzzle. Make it part of the battle map. Uh, with rituals, you have to do some homework. You have to build this stuff out, whether it's how they break the ritual or how they make the ritual. Uh, so it should be several rounds that things have to happen. I think there should be kind of there should be roles involved as well, but no single point fails. But make those roles count because now the DC starts to increase, or something else happens. Some other uh, threat is now in in the field of play. And then with weather, like I said, there were three different ways I did it. With slavers, I did just immersion, just trying to create some kind of realness and randomness in the world, utilizing weather. Barovia, I tried to play more with the darkness as an aspect of the weather and actually none of the weather which is strange because gothic horror is all about thunderstorms and uh and lightning crashing so we'll see <laughs> maybe the final battle will be nothing but torrential we're in monsoon season now well if you go if, if you go to uh the ravenloft the second edition you know realm demi planes of dread yeah. Yeah. you get a frankenstein kind of dude in there so there you can get a little more with a little more bang out of your lightning buck there you go there you go and then, uh, and then with Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, I've been using weather uh, extensively to create that sense of danger and deadliness for the world. But again, all in a way to create that level of immersion and organicness to the world, that this world is real and you have to meet it where it is. All right. So for me, you know, everyone games a little differently. And there are certainly groups out there who want to play a survival style of game where things like, you know, managing, you know, managing not to die. You know, managing your food and your warmth and your clothing are very interesting to them. And that actually, I've played some video games like that. I, I do enjoy that sometimes. I think for most D&D games, for, for most role-playing games, for most groups, what we're really talking about here is how do you make your world a little bit less mundane by making them deal with something that is a bigger deal than just, hey, roll your mechanics and you succeed or fail. You know, I think the ritual idea, uh, taking a ritual and making it a kind of a puzzle or making it a skill check skill challenge really speaks to that because what you're doing there is instead of saying okay you just make a roll and complete the ritual you're making them do things that are a little more interesting a little less mundane to make this ritual feel real with the weather if you're going to make the weather you know come up every now and then just to drive home that they have to deal with it it makes it less mundane it makes it okay no this weather really can kill me and again it gets their heads it gets the players heads off of their sheet and into the world which is something we've talked about before I really like to do. You know, mm. you want to get players not just thinking about, okay, so uh, what spell do I cast here? Or, okay, what are my odds of hitting this guy? You want to get them thinking like, okay, I'm actually a character in this world, interacting with this world, thinking on my feet, envisioning it, creatively trying to come up with solutions. And all of these things help you do that. So think of it that way. That should be your goal. When you want to make the weather more uh, a bigger part of the game, it's not just because you want to take up player time. It's because you want to make you want to get them more immersed in the world. Hit it, find a way to do it that solves that problem, that is more immersive, and then move on and get to the other stuff. Let them move the plot forward. Taking a ritual and kind of breaking it up into kind of a puzzle or skill check. Again, you're taking it out of just we do the ritual and making it something they actually have to go through the steps and do. With the puzzles, you know, giving them a puzzle, giving them actually something they have to think about. As much as that divorces the player from the character. It's worth it to, again, get their heads out of their sheet 
into the game and into the game world and into this fantasy you're trying to build together. Because I think that's really that's really the most important goal here. That's what we're really talking about. You know, we're trying to make this fantasy world we're creating together with the players more immersive and less mechanical. And I think if you think about that and you approach all of these things that way, I think you can really make a world that's more interesting, that your players feel is more real, and just don't overdo it so your players are still going after your narrative. They're still getting to use the characters. But adding these things to Splice can really make the dish. That's it for me. Guys, it was a lot of fun talking about this. Absolutely. So we're all going to come back in our next games and have massive puzzles and weather effects, right? And scarves, yes. Thanks a lot. And for everyone listening from home, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Three Wise DMs. Now, these were all listener questions. We went over how you can send them to us. But if you have anything you'd like to cover, please send it in. Send it by email. Go to our website or send it to one of our social channels. We would love to hear what you want to hear us talk about. We cover these kinds of things all the time. And I, you know, honestly, they usually make the best episodes. So if you have a question, please don't hesitate to ask. Now, if you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a five-star rating in your whatever your podcast platform is of choice. Leave us a good review. Share it with your friends. We've been growing by leaps and bounds, and that's really because of you. So thank you so much for the support you've shown us. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs. Thank you.